RiskWatch is a due diligence and compliance podcast featuring interviews with leading compliance, investigations, and research professionals to shed light on global corruption and compliance-related issues. RiskWatch is brought to you by VCheck Global, a business-to-business provider of due diligence, background checks, employment screening, document retrieval, and specialized research of both business entities and individuals. Seth Harlan of RiskWatch here, joined by Mike Blankenship, a partner in Winston & Strawn's Houston office. Mike, it's great to have you back on RiskWatch. Hey, thanks for having me, Seth. Great to be back. You last joined RiskWatch in December of 2020 at the beginning of the SPAC wave. With a lot of two-year deadlines to close deals approaching, are you planning for a DSPAC heavy spring? Yeah, I think you know there are 600 or so SPACs outstanding. And a lot of them have uh, timeframes where a maturity wall that will come due January of 2023, which means you, you really do need to back out uh, about six months from there. And so you're looking at kind of summertime, uh, but that doesn't include the ones that have that will have a maturity come uh, towards the end of the year, which just means you push that up until the spring uh, where we're starting to see a lot of activity, both from the, uh, on the target side, looking, you know, wanting to make sure they can get a deal done as well as the SPACs. And so I do expect a huge ramp up that 2022 will be sort of the year of the D-SPAC, um, just given the sheer volume of SPACs out there and the number of different industries that are covered by those SPACs. And when you're helping SPACs navigate the D-SPAC process, what's the primary reputational risk concern on your radar? Yeah, I think it's they it's they really just need to make sure they're diligent to the company uh, that they're planning to do, uh, you know, from doing background on the management to seeing that the company uh, actually has revenues, making sure that they're good at, you know, real third parties are part of the, the target company. Uh, because if they're not, and you sort of see this as you know, we put together a, a company, it's backed on spreadsheets, not on, you know, a, even on QuickBooks or something, it's it's actually sort of a startup, not really doing a lot, not really hard to see the kind of value, then there's some risk there. Um, and, and certainly should be some known risk, uh, you know, cases where there's claims of certain things that have happened need to be verified um, and you need to go make sure that those are, those are done properly. Um, and I think that starts with the a background of the background check of the of the management and the uh, directors as well, just to see sort of credibility around, you know, their history. Um, and I think that's something that wasn't always done. Uh, right. I, 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 it is done more often when you have um, larger sales side or buy side advisors helping out. Um, but when they're not, um, then sometimes that falls away because people don't want to pay the, the cost of it. But I think that's a huge, huge factor on a reputational risk because it's embarrassing if you try to do a deal uh, and that that something that could have easily been found out. And so not only do you not get that deal done, you don't get future deals done that you would have marketed off that first deal if it had been successful. And just to continue on the subject of these approaching uh, DSPAC deadlines, so we're seeing some teams reducing their proposed timeframes for identifying targets from two years to uh, one and a half years or even less. And just given that inadequate or subpar due diligence is one of the most common claims we're seeing in SPAC litigation, how can these sponsors facing deadlines avoid compromising uh, their target company due diligence? Yeah, I think they need to have a, a team ready that's 
going to be the diligence. So you have either a third party come out that you hire to do the diligence, or you have a team internally that can do the diligence simultaneous with negotiating an LOI. And then once you sign that LOI, negotiating or, or diligencing the company further so you can get to a business combination agreement. I think it's just the preparation of having uh, various teams, be it legal and fi uh, financial or your audit, uh, to make sure that they're doing the right thing, kind of understanding, taking their time, asking the questions, you know, getting a, a real diligence list out, uh, and then following up on it. And just looking at SPAC litigation last year, it seems like a lot of it pertained to Rule 10b-5 claims. So just aside from the large number of fraud cases, have any other patterns grabbed your attention? No. Well, I think that's the biggest one that's out there. I think it's just a, a it really is around a disclosure risk and what that what that had uh, looked like for for it. So you know there I it's the statement the proxy statements it's the drop in the stock prices and then it's the claim of fraud. Those are sort of the three big uh, things that in the M and A lawsuits for uh, for SPACs and the and targets. It's really not so much on the SPAC team as it is on the target side. In just with inflation on everyone's mind, regardless of industry, do you see SPACs stopping their targeting of uh, tech and biotech? I, I think they'll still try to go out there, uh, but I do think the growth story is kind of dead right now, where people aren't, aren't uh, investing in the growth. They, they're kind of looking more for uh, the value as well as proposition, as opposed to just the growth and you know, net positive revenue, net positive EBITDA. Um, but I, you know, inflation does hurt. It create, creates uh, a weaker dollar. It creates a little bit tougher situation where the costs are a little bit higher there um, by a little bit. I mean, they've gone up dramatically uh, in all sorts of sectors. But the, uh, I think you're going to still see some seek the tech angle because there will be companies out there that have uh, positive revenues that are growing, you know, post even net of inflation. In, like, what other sectors do you see drawing uh, some SPAC attention this year? I think you're going to still see biotech and healthcare still drawing um, attention, just given that there is some value and that there, there's this kind of need where people are looking at healthcare. I also think with 50, or, you know, almost 50 SPACs in the ESG or clean energy uh, sustainability, that you'll probably see some deals there as well. You certainly, I don't think you're going to see 50 deals because it's not $51 billion plus companies out there right now. Uh, but we will see um, some of those transact. And just looking at SPAC sponsors, it seems like we're having a lot of repeat sponsors coming from private equity firms. Um, and, you know, for me, this raises concerns of conflict of interest. Is this something that you look at when you're reviewing due diligence on a SPAC team? Yeah, you make sure that there's no conflict, no non-compete uh, is something that we focus on, that they're not just trying to, and private equity does do this. They have portfolio companies that can compete against one another, but here uh, is a different world because they're not private companies. It's going to be a public company. They're going to end up owning not a controlled position, you know, what sub 20% of it. Uh, but we do look at that, see whether there's some kind of conflict. Uh, conflict of interest. I think on the private equity side, though, a lot of those teams are the ones that are repeat add value because they're operators as opposed to just financial investors into it. And so that's a difference as well. So they kind of bring that private model into it. But yeah, we, 
answer your question, yes. We look at whether there's conflicts, whether there's issues that should be uh, disclosed. And just jumping into the M&A market this year, um, you know, interest in ESG, it just continues to garner more and more mainstream attention, but it raises the question, what does ESG due diligence look like? Yeah, that's a, that's a fair question because it's a, a broad term, you know, environmental, social, and governance. And it's really looking at when you have a company um, that, you know, say the energy sector, so you're really going to focus on environmental when they say they have such you know, methane emissions, you need the diligence that to make sure that their statements are correct. Uh, when you have other tech companies or ones that talk about certain things they do in the community, certain governance they do, it's really diligencing that to make sure uh, they're doing what they're saying they're doing. Um, it, it makes it a little bit more difficult when you don't have, when they put something out there and you don't diligence it, then it comes due. It's really just a greenwashing. And this is something that the SEC has been focused on because they, you know, the, they put out reports on this and that there, there is concern that companies are just out there trying to greenwash and not really do what they say they're doing. And, uh, and to investors, they're investing in that company, presumably, uh, if it is an ESG story for that story. And if you don't uh, do the proper diligence, you end up with this company that's not doing it. It's going to cost a lot more, uh, not just from litigation, but just kind of cleaning up and, and getting all the kind of third-party uh, advisors out there to help. And just in terms of doing this ESG due diligence, do you see this going deeper than ESG scoring apps? Um, you know, human source intelligence, um, traditional reputational risk due diligence, that sort of thing being required. Yeah, I think you do because people, there is dollars being invested specifically for ESG. So I think it, as opposed to those other areas, um, I, there, it is going to go a little bit deeper. There's a deeper look into those statements, deeper look into what uh, they're trying to do as far as um, accomplishing sustainability uh, and, and being a partner with the community, uh, you know, diversity and inclusion, all the different things that people look at and they need the, the metrics. Uh, to kind of deeper dive to make sure they're actually doing what they said they're doing. And, and just when a red flag is identified in terms of uh, ESG issues, how do you typically remediate this? Yeah, I think you're going to have to bring it up to the target and get an explanation as to why they may be doing one thing or saying one thing and doing another. Um, and so if you're out there saying your uh, admissions from your buildings are, are X and it's off by magnitude of, Five, then you know what? Where did this come from, and why is this this statement there? Um, your hiring policies, you know, making sure you're in line and say that there's no issues there with uh, your hiring policies. Uh, it's just a, it's really focused on uh, what you're saying is what you're doing and what you're planning to do, and so we just need to make sure that that's clear out there to. to and. If you're looking ahead, I don't know, you know, the next three, six months at the M&A market, what sectors and regions do you have your eye on? Yeah, I think it's going to be um, a couple of things. One, um, healthcare is going to continue to drive some deals. I think you've got uh, a, still a, a energy sector that's going to be continue to consolidate both on the traditional as well as clean. Uh, I know a lot of clean energy stuff is just getting started, but I think People are going to absorb other others' technology, not just license it, but actually buy it. Um, and so I think you're going to see some of that. And then um, sort of uh, probably still see some tech deals get done. 
uh, but not at the level that we saw the last 18 months. And just sticking on the topic of healthcare, I want to hit on the Theranos fraud. So the due diligence failures revealed in Elizabeth Holmes's trial were pretty shocking. Uh, one thing I'm fixated on is just the speed with which the healthcare industry leaders, uh, you know, Walgreens, Safeway, and even many seemingly sophisticated investors just accepted Holmes's unverified claims about Theranos's tech capabilities. You know, given the extensive resources of many of Theranos's backers, I, I expected at least some independent scientific due diligence to be conducted. What's your take on these oversights being attributed to the overheated market? I think that's part of it. I think it's overheated. I think there are a lot of dollars in the system and they needed to put it to use. They did not look to see, um, you know, Drill, drill down on that and have their people that typically do look at that type of investments. I think there's more cautious behavior now, but this is a story that's gone on before. We've seen fraudulent stuff in the last 25 years. Uh, it's very easy for people to get uh, get somebody in there, believe them, have their trust, and just not really verify. Um, you know, they, they really should trust but verify, right? The old Reagan quote. But yes, they should certainly look to make sure that uh, that whatever they're presenting has something to back it. And I think that's with anything. And that's why we have regulators on the public company side of things that go out and make sure people are, when they're disclosed, do that. And, you know, we have a whole whole system of plaintiffs bars that look at 10B5 type claims. But I think as far as uh, diligence and quick to, to market, I think they're putting dollars to use too quick thought this was something that was going to be revolutionary and um, and it failed. And it was pretty clear that uh, when you rush out without the proper diligence, um, you're going to have issues, cracks in that. And it's important to, to really look through everything and question everything. Yeah, I mean, it was also really surprising just that the composition of Theranos' board of directors didn't raise more eyebrows. It really just seems like such low-hanging diligence for it. Yeah, I mean, that should be an indication when you don't have all the industry experts in there, but you have uh, politicians, military. Those those guys aren't the ones that understand the business as opposed to having a, a healthcare biotech person, uh, majority. And just finally, I know we've we've almost made it without hitting on uh, COVID, but I got to ask: with uh, social distancing and lockdowns significantly contributing to the popularity of everything digital, do you see offerings like remote healthcare and telehealth solutions having a strong year? I still think they will. Um, I think people are still uh, it's it's the convenience factor now. You spent two years with it, but now it's convenient. Uh, I mean, I had used it before the pandemic so i i've been aware of it but i think this kind of ramped up the uh, users of it and i think it'll continue to people will continue to use it I, it, it just makes sense for convenience factors same reason people will continue to try to do remote work um because of convenience and easier well, thank you so much, Mike, for uh, joining Wristwatch today. It was really great to have you and to be able to you know, catch up since you last appeared in 2020. Yeah. And great just, just for our listeners you know, that want to keep in touch, you know, see what you're doing, I noticed you're pretty active on LinkedIn. Is that the best spot to uh, keep tabs on you? It is. Um, I'm quite, I do uh, a lot of postings there. I follow a lot of stuff. So 
that's the best way to, to keep track of me. Um, and, and obviously, anytime anyone wants to reach out, I'm, I'm available. Awesome. Thank you so much, Mike. All right. Thank you, Seth.